Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. Our guest for this podcast is Dr. Catherine Montgomery, professor in the School of Communication at American University and director of a PhD program at American University focused on the intersections of media, technology, and democracy. During the 1990s, she served as president and was co-founder of the nonprofit organization Center for Media Education. She's been very active in issues of marketing, in particular food marketing recently, and has done groundbreaking work in the new frontier of digital marketing. Catherine, delighted to have you here. Thanks. Let me start with a question about digital marketing. Tell me what people mean when they use that term. Uh, we're living in an era, as you know, uh, where uh, the Internet has become a pervasive presence in our lives and particularly in the lives of young people. And we're talking not just about uh, your computer, but your telephone, your, your cell phone, and video games and social media, social networks, which are a ve- very much a part of the daily lives of young people. And marketers have uh, been looking at and developing ways to, to reach young people through these new media uh, for for the long time, since the beginning of the internet, really, since the beginning of the World Wide Web in the mid-90s. So uh, digital marketing includes uh, engaging young people through online gaming. Uh, It it includes using uh, social media to uh, uh, reach young people and to engage them around brands and products and to share them with their friends, uh, reaching them on their cell phones. So by social media, you mean mean Facebook, Twitter? Facebook, uh, Twitter, YouTube, all of those uh, are uh, very much in the center of contemporary marketing strategies by all companies. How important are children to, to these companies? Children over the last 30 or 40 years have become a highly lucrative market. Uh, We know that they have a lot of spending power. That's increased steadily over the years. Uh, They're also very influential uh, in terms of uh, getting their parents to buy things. We talk a lot about the nag factor or pester power. And they can also influence purchases by their families of of products like um, uh, trips and cars and hotels. And marketers have been targeting them with increasing sophistication and um, uh, aggression. Uh, I was hesitating to use that word, but I think they've been aggressively uh, marketing children for a long time. And now they can do it on steroids through digital media. Well, it doesn't sound like that's a market segment they're likely to give up easily. It is not. Uh, and particularly teenagers, uh, young children and teenagers, because teenagers have more spending power, more independence, uh, more discretionary money to spend, <laughs> whereas the rest of us have to pay our mortgages and our grocery bills and so forth. Uh, teenagers have more discretionary money, so they're a very, very lucrative target for marketers. I'd like to get some examples from you, maybe one or two of the, the digital marketing campaigns, the ones that you find are most concerning. But I know you have a website where people can access examples of these sort of things. Would you yes. mind giving us that? Yes. Um, we work very closely. I work very closely with two organizations. One is the Center for Digital Democracy, and the website there is democraticmedia.org. And the other is the Berkeley Media Studies Group. And those two groups cooperatively have established a website called digitalads.org. 
org, uh, where there are lots of interesting reports that we've done, and we keep track of changes that are taking place in the digital marketplace, um, and lots and lots of examples of the kinds of marketing we're talking about, particularly by food companies and soft drink companies targeting children and teens. Could you give us an example or two of a campaign that the companies have run that you think is there are concerning? many many campaigns that are being run uh, by all the major food companies and a couple that I can talk about we've done some case studies that are on that website that provide detailed documentation of how all this works which is really quite fascinating and kind of scary too um, so for example uh, one that we in fact just filed a complaint against is a campaign by uh, Doritos uh, which is owned by Frito-Lay, which is owned by PepsiCo, uh, which targets uh, teenagers through uh, a very, very elaborate, scary um, video game online um, that they have called, there are two of them, Hotel 626 and Asylum 626. The purpose was to bring back some flavors from the dead, and they launched them around Halloween. Uh, but the idea was really to involve these kids in an entertaining game where they're caught into the action. They're caught up in this scary, scary kind of video, and they involve their friends through Facebook and Twitter so that it builds into the whole campaign the social media networks and it's not just an ad coming at this kid. It's the kid involved in a game for a long period of time and involving all the friends. And not only that, but the product itself carries a, um, uh, a, a barcode that enables you to unlock content, which is a lot of what you see in these efforts. Um, the My Coke campaign, uh, which has been around for quite a few years now, five or six years, is designed really to collect a lot of personal data from people, and particularly from uh, young people, uh, so that they can earn rewards for providing information so they can get discounts and tickets and so forth. And the whole idea is that you supply this personal information about yourself and then the company can keep a profile of you and be able to target you personally. Um, and also, of course, every time you, you engage, you're buying a product, you're drinking the product. So a lot of these things really do encourage overconsumption. Now, the, the Asylum 626, I've only seen bits and pieces that you've shown in talks you've given. I've never watched the whole thing, but it has the it has this horror movie theme, as you kind of mentioned. And, I mean, there, there, a chainsaw murder-type thing that is in there somewhere and somebody getting electric shock treatments. And, I mean, it looks pretty gruesome. And But the thing that you mentioned that seemed especially um, concerning was how you, you would get, go into the, the computer and give it your friends' names, and then your friends could get involved in saving you, or you determine which of your friends survive. It just, it's not right. A... It's, it's very elaborate. And what it does is, is it taps into the networks of friendships that these kids have on the social networks. And they do this, you know, informally anyway. I mean, they, they interact with one another and, um, you know, communicate with groups of friends. But it basically then involves them in, in a way that in some ways you know, could be quite unfair uh, that they're being brought into this game, but it's also part of this, this idea of viral marketing, that you're not just targeting one kid. You're targeting that kid and all the other kids or many of the other kids that one knows. And he then or she spreads that message and involves those kids. And it's all supposed spent to, uh, meant rather to be um, entertaining. And obviously it is. You know, it's, I've shown it to a lot of young people, and I get different, different uh, reactions. I mean, to, to adults, adults are often horrified. Some young kids don't 
think it's a big deal at all because they've seen all these horror movies, but they like it. And uh, and some kids are really quite taken with it and think, gee, well, that's cool. I'm going, I'm going to do that. So the companies know this. And I think one of the most important features about digital marketing is that we're now in an era where the concept of a separate ad from being separate from the content of a program or from uh, a, a, a play area like a video game or an online game, that's really, that's disappearing. Those boundaries are disappearing. It's becoming integrated. Does that make it harder for the consumer, be it a child or a teenager, to separate out what's um, the, the, uh, the content of the program from the marketing? That is entirely the purpose, that that the, that the content is blended in in such an integral way that there, um, there is no real distinction and you're not really thinking about it as advertising. And so your defenses are not up, but it's woven into the content. So if it's an online game, it's a product that is part of the, the play in that game. Um, if it's uh, part of... Um, uh, you know, a cell phone campaign, a mobile phone campaign. It's its part of your communication with your friends. Right. So I know one thing that you've written about extensively and discussed in talks I've heard you give is that th- this these digital marketing techniques are very powerful for a lot of reasons, but one of them is that you're not just a passive recipient of information, like if you're watching a television advertisement, but you're actively engaged and that you can, that, that the, the level of of influence that these marketing practices have can go way up because of this engagement. Not to mention that if you're engaged enough, you can stay with it for a really long time. That's exactly right. And engagement has become a buzzword in the industry. It has a lot of different meanings, but one is that you really want people to, and in this case kids and teens, to interact with the brand in a variety of different ways for you know, unlimited periods of time. And this might mean um, including it in your um, uh, IM, uh, when you're doing IMing, including a brand logo. Uh, I mean, it's the same principle in some ways as, you know, using T-shirts and so forth that become part of one's life. But online, it's very different because it also can, can mean engagement at a deeper psychological level. And there are all kinds of new uh, efforts underway to identify how to do that, how to get people to engage emotionally with a brand, and then to make it a part of who they are and to identify with it. And when we look at young people who are in the process of establishing their identities, and we look at the online environment, which is such a perfect vehicle for uh, young people to explore their identities and to express their identities, the marriage of these two things becomes particularly powerful, where brand identity and self-identity become intertwined. Um, But there's also the kind of engagement that, um, uh, that involves interaction and sharing of information so that it goes beyond um, just uh, just kind of identifying with the product. You're actually, in some cases, even creating the ad for the product with what's called user-generated media, user-generated content. And of course, that's a wonderful part of digital media that kids can go online and they're not just sitting there in the front of the boob tube. They're creating content and they're expressing themselves and they're distributing it. Well, marketers have taken advantage of that so that now they're distributing and creating commercials that they can um, 
then send to all their friends. So Mountain Dew has a, a campaign called Democracy that's precisely about this very thing, that you then endorse the product, and then you go online and you create a video and you send that video and you put it out there. What a cool thing for mm -hmm. a teen, right? But, uh, but then you're, the idea is that you've become part of the whole process. So how do we think about this stuff now? How do we think about the relationship that young people have to advertising? Um, the other important part that, that I really want to make sure people understand is that in the interactive media online and on cell phones, um, the underlying mechanism that's becoming increasingly important involves extensive data collection and profiling. These are mechanisms that uh, we've never seen in the past, where you go online and you can be tracked. Every move you make can be tracked. And the marketers can know who you are, even if you do not supply them your name. They can know because of the computer you're using and because of the patterns of your behavior. And the level of sophistication that this has reached, and, is, and we're just in the beginning of it, is unbelievable. And it's one of those developments that most people just aren't aware of. So what sort of information is collected and how does the industry use it? Information about um, how you respond to an ad, information about where you go online, information about your uh, information that you may supply in one context for one purpose that would be used in another purpose for another purpose. So uh, let's say you're going online to search for something. Uh, maybe you have some symptoms of a disease and you're worried and you're a worry ward or a hypochondriac or not, but you're going online and you're searching a term. That can be uh, tracked. You might then become part of a database um, of people who are associated with that disease, for example. And the pharmaceutical companies have developed highly sophisticated campaigns that use these kinds of tracking technologies uh, to target people, often in very, very covert ways. And you may think you're just online, in a, even in a community support group, to find out about something. But in fact, in some cases, these are even set up by the companies. Uh, but in fact, what you're doing is you're supplying tons of information that are used to create profiles of you. So I could see a company, I could see the, the industry, for example, tracking the type of music you listen to and then integrating Absolutely. that into a specific ad for you. That's right. Think about all the things you do online. Right. Just think about all, and, and the thing is that our online use has become so integral and necessary a part of what we do every day. And all of that is fair game. So if you think about your typical day and what you're doing online, you need to understand that the information that you're supplying, either by you know, filling out something or more commonly by where you go and what you do, is all being collected. And, it, and the other thing is that sometimes the information is um, then provided to these third-party entities who are auctioning you off <laughs> at a moment in time so that you can be reached because you were here and then you moved over there and now you're over here. So it's quite sophisticated and quite interesting. And most of it is just not fully understood. And it's not transparent. I mean, that, that's one of the, the complaints that I have. Um, now we've, uh, you know, I think we're seeing more people becoming aware of it. There have, there have been a number of privacy debates in Washington and that's where I am. And uh, I think increasingly uh, policymakers and, and public interest groups and consumers are beginning to be aware that this could be a problem and, um, uh, you know, know that 
there, there are things going on online that are not being made apparent, and we need to think about how we can address those things. Could you explain what's meant by neuromarketing? Neuromarketing, I mean, there's so many buzzwords in the marketing industry um, that, uh, you know, we have a glossary, actually, that we've created of a lot of these different terms uh, that most people are not familiar with. Uh, but, uh, But neuromarketing refers to the use of... Um, neuroscience techniques that are being used in the health sciences to address disease and to uh, really understand how the brain works, um, being harnessed for the use uh, for use by marketers in order to very precisely measure the response in the brain to advertising techniques and advertising efforts and to foster deeper levels of engagement and and to to develop campaigns and techniques that are really, really designed to tap into the unconscious. Now, we know that tapping into the unconscious is something that marketers have tried to do and have been been at for decades. Uh, But what's happening now is that there are uh, techniques and there is science that makes that much more uh, precise and ultimately more effective so that you can trigger a reaction to something that is is at a level where consumers are not fully aware of it. These sound like entire new frontiers where you've got lots of digital techniques being invented on the run. I mean, tomorrow there could be something brand new, something brand new the day after that. there's not good law to govern this sort of thing. Who knows where it's going to go next because it's so rapidly developing. The companies are using neuroimaging techniques, brain imaging techniques to figure out how to do better. How in the world does this, does the nation figure out a fair and equitable way to deal with this where the companies can market but people aren't exploited? I think one of the first steps is to um, get people to understand that it's going on. It's been a well-kept secret. It's obviously not a secret in the industry. And I work with several other researchers who are constantly tracking what the industry is doing. But for the most part, the mainstream public and policymakers have not been aware of it. Now, in the last couple of years, and this is with the help and insistence and pushing of, uh, of the advocacy community, the press has begun to pay a little bit more attention to it. There have been a series, for example, of articles in the Wall Street Journal about behavioral targeting that really exposed a lot of what all of us have been tracking and people have been responding to it. So that's certainly step one that people need to know about it. Um, And I think that's something that's going to need to continue. These things are happening and as you say they're developing so rapidly. It's a very dynamic environment. Um, I think consumers need to be uh, very, very uh, skeptical about what's going on online and to really think before they provide information um, and to also instruct their children and their teenagers to do the same. I'm hopeful uh, that the work that a number of us have been doing to try to get policymakers to take these issues issues up will be successful. It's a campaign that, you know, is going to take some time. But, um, you know, this is still an industry that's early on in its its development. Uh, we were involved, and I actually led this campaign that you mentioned at the beginning of this discussion in the 1990s to... Um, uh, enact, we were involved in a campaign that enacted, it resulted in enacting a law called the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, which has been able to have an impact on this marketplace because now marketers 
that would have been collecting extensive amount of personal information from kids under 13 cannot do so. They've been constrained from doing so by the law. And, and the industry understands this. This is a law they've learned how to live with. At the beginning, you know, they resisted, and now they act like they own it, you know, because that's what we do. So I think what we need to do is to think about how we develop some principles for marketing fairly to young people, particularly in this in this new digital arena. And, and, and we haven't talked directly about the whole issue of childhood obesity, but really when you look at the products, that 99% or close to that uh, of the products that are pushed to young people are products that really contribute to their bad health. They really, really are very, very harmful to their health. And we need to hold industry accountable for these things. So we need to draw some lines about what they can do and what they can't do. You know, you're exactly right about that, that the, um, if you look at what's being marketed to kids digitally or otherwise, it's so much, there's such an imbalance between the healthy and unhealthy foods. So, you know, Asylum 626, for example, was not pushing radishes. No, and not only that, it's trying to, you know, that campaign and lots of the others are really focused on developing more and more varieties of these products. So it's not just one kind of Doritos. It's like 10 kinds of Doritos. Or a Mountain Dew with a new flavor. Or a Mountain Dew with the new flavors. That's really what's happening here. And, um, uh, you know, the other thing that I think is just so important for people to understand is it hasn't always been this way. We've seen in the last three or four decades the steady growth of products designed, many of which are designed for young people that didn't exist before, that are processed foods, that are not healthy, that are marketed aggressively. And that is really how we've changed the diets of young people, and we need to reverse those trends. Well, and I know the people that object to the marketing complain that um, so much money is being spent on marketing experts to market unhealthy foods, but now it's almost as if our children have become unpaid employees of those marketing companies because they're doing the marketing on their own in some cases. They have, and they are. They're being enlisted as part of these campaigns. And we see some of this as problematic and and maybe illegal in some cases. And that's one of the things that we have complained about to regulators, that when you have kids distributing a commercial for a product, um, and, and, you know, it becomes so intermingled with the communication that that child has with his or her friends, there's something going on there that's not fair that may well be deceptive. Well, congratulations for your groundbreaking work. This really is an entirely new frontier that, as I said, moves very rapidly. And so it's wonderful that some people are serving in that watchdog function as you have. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. Our guest was Dr. Catherine Montgomery, professor in the School of Communication at American University, an expert in particular on digital forms of marketing. Please visit our website, www.yalerudcenter.org, where you'll find a variety of um, materials on food policy issues, including an email newsletter with alerts about breaking issues in the field, and also, of course, a list of the other podcasts that have been recorded with excellent guests to the Rudd Center. Thank you.